Hello, and welcome to the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luke Njani. And today we are joined by a special guest, Jonathan Hall. Uh, he is on a mission to bring enterprise, quotes, uh, software delivery benefits to small companies. Uh, he has over three decades of experience in software development, two decades in technical leadership roles, and is a regular blogger on topics of software delivery practices, which we love. Uh, and he is here to talk about how and why to implement continuous delivery in reverse, skipping the automated tests. I'm going to say welcome to the show and then explain yourself, sir. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, explain myself. <laughs> well, I, uh, I'm one of those hardcore manual testing advocates. I'm not. I'm totally not. I'm completely kidding. <laughs> it was just getting my pitfall going. <laughs> <laughs> You're scaring me, man. So, uh, yeah, let, let me explain. So, uh, implementing continuous delivery in reverse uh, is a controversial topic, I think, until I explain it. Like, I, I hear people, whenever I say this, they're like, what? Skipping the test? That's the whole point. And then uh, I, I sort of explain it and then go, oh, maybe that makes sense. So, maybe I can convince you that this makes sense today. That, that feels like we need some explanation here. Yeah. Like, firstly, what is continuous delivery? Secondly, what is continuous delivery, quote unquote, the forward direction? And then maybe we can we can yeah. talk about what is continuous delivery in reverse. It's a great, great way to start. So, I mean, I, I'm sure that everybody's heard the term continuous delivery, but let's be clear about what we mean, because there is some confusion around this term. Um, I, I like to use the definition uh, that minimumcd.org puts forth. Uh, it's a website that sort of breaks down what's the minimum steps or, or, or components you need in place to say that you're truly doing continuous delivery. Um, and it, from memory, it basically says continuous delivery is the practice of delivering software as it's, as you make changes on a continual basis. Now, let me clarify what I mean by delivery because we're on an embedded podcast. Um, continuous delivery and continuous deployment are often confused because they have the same acronym, right? They're both, both CD. But they are very distinct things in, in certain ways. Continuous delivery is simply the, I like to think of it as the, uh, the, the act of making a deployable artifact ready automatically uh, upon a change, right? It doesn't necessarily mean it's deployed. When I, when I spoke about this topic uh, at a conference in September, somebody was like, oh, we can't do continuous delivery if you're building software for satellites. I'm like, no, you can. You definitely can. You know, the Mars rover, Teslas, uh, self-driving Teslas, all these things can do continuous delivery. They maybe don't do continuous deployment. You know, you may not deploy your your fixes to the Mars rover 15 times a day, but you can continuously deliver. So let's make that distinction clear. Continuous delivery is just building that artifact that could be deployed uh, when you make the business decision. To wait, deploy. wait, wait. Isn't that continuous integration? <laughs> Glad you asked. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, continuous integration, uh, however, is something that you need to have before you can do continuous delivery. So the next step back from continuous delivery is continuous integration. And there's a lot of confusion around this term also. Uh, an exercise I like to do when I'm speaking on this topic is I, I start the, the presentation by saying, who, who here in the room is doing continuous integration or continuous delivery? And like almost everybody's hand goes up, right? Because they installed Jenkins or whatever. So their hands go up. And then I, all right, now, if you, if you did not deploy software to production yesterday, put your hand down. And half the hands go down. <laughs> and I... Uh, you know, and I ask a bunch of different questions. You know, if if you um, 
if you have a feature branch that's that's more than 24 hours old, put your hand down and hands go down and so on and so forth. And when I did this in September, there was one hand left up in the room at the end of 50 people. So, you know, that's the one person in the room who was actually doing continuous integration, continuous delivery. So continuous integration is the practice of integrating your changes with those of other developers on your team continually. Uh, at least once a day is a common definition. And to truly do continuous delivery, as a minimum CD.org explains, you need to have continuous integration, which also in turn depends on trunk-based development, which we can get into if we want to. Uh, but the point is, every developer needs to be making changes in, in small, small changes continually into the production or, or, or master branch that is then deployable, deployed and deployable. So that's continuous delivery. You asked, what's the normal, what's the forward way to do that? Well, I think the forward way, the, the way I certainly uh, imagined in implementing continuous delivery the first time I heard of it, which was kind of almost broke my mind the first time I heard about this, because I was you know, used to you know, months-long release cycles and so on, just like everybody else was. And I heard this idea, like, what if, what if Trunk was always deployable? Like, what? How would that be possible? Uh, and so, you know, the, I think the natural way to think about implementing this is, okay, so if we're going to do continuous integration, that means we need good tests so that we know that nothing breaks. So let's spend a bunch of time building a whole bunch of tests. Let's automate those tests. Let's, let's, uh, let's get our, our manual engine uh, testers to start writing automation scripts, and eventually we can fire them or, or whatever. <laughs> Hopefully we aren't firing people, but you know that those these thoughts go through people's minds. Um, and and let's get our let's train our engineers to start doing I don't know they could be doing TDD or at least writing unit tests or whatever. You know, let's, let's get all this automation in place. Then once that's done, we'll set up our CI server and we'll start doing actual continuous integration. You know, we'll actually start integrating uh, every five minutes or whatever. And then once that's done, we'll automate the deployment or we'll automate the build and then the deployment. And once that's finally done, you know, if it's appropriate for our business, we'll start doing automated deployments into production. So this is what, a six month to 12 month to 18 month project? Let's get started. That's that's the normal way forward, right? And it, why not? I mean, that, that's the order that the things happen in. So why wouldn't we think of it in that way? What I like to do is do it in reverse. And I start at the other end. I start at the deployment end of the pipeline and I work my way backwards. So the first step, when, when I'm coming into a team that is struggling with slow software delivery or, or low quality, you know, lots of bugs or, or whatever their complaints are, but th those are usually what all the complaints boil down to, one of those two things. It takes too long and, it, and it's low quality. I start with, let's make sure that our build is automated. And, and half the teams already have that or something close, right? You know, that's not so difficult these days. So that the build is automated. Um, and then let's set up a GitHub action or GitLab pipeline or whatever tool you're using, Jenkins, whatever, let's start deploying that somewhere. It doesn't have to be production. It could be a test server or something. But let's start building that artifact and deploying it somewhere, a test environment, for example. And then only after we've done that first, we'll start start adding those tests. So I think uh, we've talked a lot about this on the on the podcast in the past. I think that's probably the that's the order in which I would counsel people to do it. Um, mm -hmm. in terms of like first we've, we've talked about this, you know, first set up build automation, then start basically slowly adding tests, but I feel like there's, oh. so what you just said doesn't rock my world, but I feel like right. there are other practices along with this. Uh, maybe, maybe it's the way that you bring it, like incorporate manual testing into basically the merge mm -hmm. or the pull request, uh, yeah. 
aspect. I feel like there's something else that you've advocated for that would really be yes. different from what I would advocate. I would have advocated for. Okay. So keep going with that. Yeah. Sure. So naturally, this what I just described tends to bring up a lot of questions, um, especially when I'm working with a team that has, uh, say, a testing team, or, or maybe it's maybe they're integrated to the same team, but you know, manual testing process, you know, where the developer spends a week building something that passes over to the tester, he's about a week testing it, and maybe there's some back and forth, and then it gets deployed. So my my, my rule of thumb, my, my or not even rule of thumb, my, sort of my 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 rule, the number one rule <laughs> is. Once the developer hits merge, that software cannot be touched by human until it's deployed somewhere. Could be a test server, could be production. I mean, start with a test server. If it makes sense for your business application, production is fine. Um, but you know, from from merge until ready for deployment, there must be zero human interaction, and and that's part of minimumcd.org too. You know, it talks about that. <clears throat> The thing where where what I'm describing uh, isn't CD yet is I'm not I'm not even talking about continuous integration yet or necessarily trunk based development. You could do Gitflow or whatever branching strategy you want. You could have six month feature branches at this point and and still get to to what I'm talking about. <laughs> the hard part in a lot of people's minds is especially if they're using something like Gitflow or they have any any sort of uh, progression in their deployment. Typically, uh, they merge to develop. Then QA does something, and then they merge to to production or to master or whatever. What breaks people's minds is, but how do my testers test this code if if it's already merged into the master branch by the developer? And so this, this and I don't know if this differs from what you would you would advocate, but uh, where it differs from what people assume I'm advocating is I'm not telling you to do the testing afterwards. I'm telling you to do the testing before you merge, and and this can confuse people. Because uh, it's not always obvious how to get that testing uh, even physically possible before that merge button is pressed, and so that's that's usually where the conversation goes. Sure, and and I guess that so that that does kind of break my mind. So so, and I don't want to. And this always happens. Uh, Luca Luca wants to focus on the culture, and I want to focus on the technical little minutia and tools. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm not going to do that, Luca. I'm going to spare you, and I'll spare our audience of me. Quizzing Jonathan. Jonathan will talk offline afterwards about the. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So you need to do the testing before you merge, but it still needs to be right. like merging does modify things. If you are merging two things, the right. results, you know, you actually need to review and, and know what the results of that mm -hmm. merge is going to be and make sure you're testing right. that. So therefore, your tools need to support that. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Okay. Yes, I would agree. All right. All right. Yeah. Continue. All right. So where this usually goes, um, now, now th this is going to be something I'm not able to come in on com with complete confidence in an embedded uh, uh, environment because I, I've not really worked in embedded software. So I, I, I welcome your creativity and we can, we can maybe hash some of this out uh, on, on this show. Um, but l l let's just start with a simple case. You know, building a SaaS is kind of simple as software goes. You know, there's a pretty straightforward pipeline. You don't have to worry about release schedules generally. You know, you can just you can push 15 times today a day to the to the production server if you want to. So, in in a simple scenario like that, um, what I typically see is a team has the developer merge their code into a developed branch, and then when the QA team or person has time, a few days later usually. They test that code along with 15 other changes that other developers have made. 
They run it through their battery of manual and automated tests, whatever they have. And then they report back and they say, oh, I found this bug or this thing isn't quite what we expected, doesn't quite meet requirements, whatever. And there's this little back and forth that happens over the course of minutes, days, hours, whatever. What I what I suggest is to instead of uh, instead of doing all that, don't merge your stuff, but but push it somewhere so that the tester can test it in isolation. Now, the easiest way to do that in this scenario I described is to take your existing test environment where you're batching up all these changes and just repurpose that existing environment uh, for as, as your test still your test environment. But rather than pushing everything there in a chunk, just have one developer at a time push their changes to that environment. So now Bob has finished feature X. He pushes it to the test environment, passes it on to QA. QA does their work. They do their back and forth dance. Once it's done, Bob merges it to, to master. And then Alice can come along and push her feature Y to the testing environment. So that, that's the simplest way to start when you're doing uh, this sort of SaaS style workflow. And of course, that brings up a lot of other questions. Wait, wait we have 50 developers. How do they all use the one test environment? Well, blah, blah, blah. We can totally get into that. That's very valid, and it's mostly a cultural thing. So maybe it's Lucas' turn on this one. But, <laughs> um, but that's the simple answer. Now, if you're doing embedded stuff, I mean, that's going to depend a lot on how your tests are being run. You know, are you testing against actual hardware? Are you testing against an emulator? And you know, there's a lot of things here. I can kind of guess some answers, but I don't, I don't know them from experience. So, um, but the key is find a creative way to test that code in isolation before you merge it. That makes your test more valid because you're not you don't have this you know um, the possible effect of two or more features that might interact with each other uh, in strange ways. Um, it's actually easier for the tester because they know exactly what they're testing. They don't have to test the whole application; they can just test the parts that that you expect it to change and so on. So there's there's a lot of advantages to that um, from a from sort of scientific standpoint of you know keep you know, controlled variables and so on and so forth. Look yeah, what, I mean it's. Yes, go on. No, I was just going to say, Luca. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I'm, well, first of all, I'm I'm thinking that I I completely agree with Jonathan, and I think we've gone over this a couple of times already on the podcast, haven't we? Um, that uh, we really value it, <laughs> turning it around to to use Jonathan's words and and starting like with the outcome. What's what's the point of this whole thing? The point of this whole thing is to get. A new artifact onto um, in front of your customer, whatever that means. In in the case of a SaaS, it means deploying to a web server or something. And then, in the case of an embedded system, it might mean flashing firmware. <clears throat> the details don't matter, but the principle, of course, stays the same. And I th uh, and, and it's just really powerful, isn't it, to think from 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 the actual desired outcome. And then sort of work your way backwards to okay, how do I now that I can can put code onto my embedded system or put an artifact onto my embedded system? How do I work backwards towards the curly brackets that start the whole thing, right? Oh. So it makes perfect sense to me. I think it's very important to to make that point once more that that Jonathan stated at the beginning of you know continuous integration, continuous delivery, continuous deployment of, of really making a distinction between these three terms, where continuous deployment, that's maybe the, the most straightforward. It means every time somebody checks in, uh, checks in some more new code, commits some new code, 
assuming that all of the tests pass, it goes straight to production. So it doesn't just mean um, deploying it anyway, it just means deploying it in actual production. But mm -hmm. continuous delivery is a bit more murky because what are you delivering to? Who are you delivering to? You're delivering, I suppose, to, to the business itself. You're giving the business a choice of when is the perfect time to get this new version in the hands of the customer? There may right. be technical technical considerations, like in you know in a satellite, you want to make really sure that you know that it really all works. But there may also be like business considerations. You know, maybe you want to do a big marketing push, or maybe you need to train people first. Whatever the case may be. So the point is, you're delivering it into the hands of the customer. Uh, the deployment decision is not a technical decision anymore, as it used to be back in the day. You know, you needed to pull everybody in on the weekend and uh, shut down all of the servers and uh, pray to whatever deity you believe in that they come back up again. That's not the point anymore. We we know that we can deploy because we've done it a million times already because we've got Jonathan's awesome automation. So now it's really a business decision. When would be the best time to deploy this particular set of functionality to the customer? Uh, that is that is very valuable and important. In fact, it's extremely important, I think. And isn't that your point, Jonathan? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, 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 one small clarification, actually. You mentioned, um, you know, maybe you don't want this feature to go out until a marketing push or, or something like that. You can still do that with continuous uh, deployment as well if you're using something like feature flags. Uh, which is, I, mean, I don't know how common that is in the embedded world, but of course in the SaaS world, it's incredibly common. Uh, for mobile apps, it, it's also very common, maybe a little bit less so, it's a little more cumbersome. Um, but, you know, so th th there's there's multiple variables we're dealing with and, uh, you know, deploying the code is one. Uh, deploying a feature can be decoupled from that. And that's something people often forget. Um, well, you know, but I, I think the important thing here is that practically every objection I hear people make to continuous deployment is really uh, addressed by continuous delivery. You know, I, I honestly have yet to think of a situation where continuous delivery does not make sense in the software world. There may be one. I have I have tried for years to think of one. I haven't found one. Uh, <laughs> the whole thing about it's a satellite. We can't, we can't upload. I don't know how big satellite software packages are, but we can't upload a gigabyte to the satellite every hour. Okay, fine. Your continuous delivery to the mock-up satellite emulator sitting in the garage. Do that every hour, and do the actual satellite update once every month, or whatever makes sense for your business needs, right? Exactly, and and of course, this is exactly what they're doing. There's the the concept of an iron bird, you know, the mock satellite sitting in a basement uh, that you can ruin as as much as you want because it's not actually flying, so it yeah. doesn't actually hurt your business. All right. So, what about? Um, so, I'm I'm living in the medical device world, uh, which is you know safety critical, and and I'm sure some of our listeners do too, either in medical devices or automotive or aerospace or rail or uh, you know other safety critical things. Maybe let's think about how this uh, how this works in those environments. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So we so we have to we clearly have to test thoroughly. Um, right. So maybe walk me through what that looks like. So, I mean, I, I'm not going to pretend to know the answer to how to test every software under all circumstances. 
what I can confidently say, though, is I have higher trust in computers to do an, a thorough job of testing something than I do humans. Uh, so now, what? I, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. Before I get there, whatever system you have in place today to ensure that your medical device, your pacemaker, or your self-driving Tesla, whatever system you have in place today, keep it in place. Just move it before that merge button. That's the only thing to start with. That's where you start. So keep if you if you have a battery of six hundred highly perf- uh, paid manual testers who run your medical device through whatever manual testing battery they can think of, and you trust that, great. Keep that. Just do it before the merge button. So now, I know this brings up a lot of questions about, wait, how do we streamline that and so on? And those are great questions that we need to answer as an as a industry or as a team. But I'm not telling you to fundamentally change the way you test anything at all. I'm just telling you, move it before the merge button. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I agree. But uh, I know that you know many people I've worked with in the medical device industry will just cough at that because... Sad to say, a lot of the medical device industry works the way of a whole lot of manual testing at the end, just before release. Mm -hmm. Um, That's something I'm trying trying to change, but it is a difficult problem. It's a a cultural problem. It is. Oh, man, I can't just solve it with technology. No, we can't. And and that's where this this conversation usually goes is, but we don't trust computers to test this stuff. Like, why not? You know, and, and this is a cultural question. It's a question of of cognitive bias and and culture. <laughs> it's not a technical question. But why yeah, don't that's you a funny thing, isn't it? Uh, like, yeah. weren't those computers programmed by people in the first place? So, like, yeah. if if you're trusting people in in one capacity but not in the other, what's going on? Well, I mean, I I, I kind of understand uh, viscerally why uh, people trust humans more than computers. But I don't understand it logically. Uh, I, I'm reminded of a, I'm a Star Trek nerd. I'm reminded of the episode of this Next Generation where they're trying to navigate uh, an asteroid field, and Data. I think Data has the idea. What if we turn over navigation to the computer? It can make these minute, you know, multi, nanosecond uh, adjustments and get us out of the asteroid field safely. And it was this big discussion in the ready room. Oh, I don't know if we can trust a computer to navigate our ship and hand over control from the computer from the humans. And I remember watching that as like a thirteen-year-old, thinking, "What the hell are you guys talking about? Trust the computer; it's smarter than you. It can do this stuff." <laughs> but I, I feel like it's the same kind of conversation we have here uh, when it comes to manual testing. And you know, it, it, it's it, it's kind of ridiculous when you have this conversation about a SaaS. Like, who, who cares if there's a little bug on the login screen and somebody has to wait ten minutes while you roll out a release? It's a lot more serious when it's a medical device or a self-driving car or a Mars rover. So I, I get that concern. But humans are notoriously bad at following scripts reliably. Computers are designed to do that and nothing else. That's the <laughs> entire reason computers exist. It's, it's, I, I saw somebody remark recently, it's amazing how difficult it is to convince people in the industry that, is, that exists solely to automate things that they should automate things. Yep. So, you know, we need to have these conversations with these people and we need to treat them with respect and not insult their intelligence, but it can get hard <laughs> because that's why this industry exists. If you don't trust the industry to automate things, why are you in this industry? 
Yeah, but I mean, you you use that word a couple of times, and it's it's the central word, isn't it? Trust. Yeah. It's not about testing. It's not even about quality. It's about right. trust. Do you trust your system? Um, and trust comes from from many different directions. It comes through, you know, how many tests do you have? But it also comes from how do you actually test and 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 how in 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 what other ways do you verify that you've got good reason to trust your system, right? Right. Uh, you know, such as reviews, for instance. And that's just that people need to recognize that this is what's going on so that they can address it properly. I can think of lots of automated tests that will not increase my trust in the system, but the same is true for manual tests. Mm -hmm. So you need to be honest about this and say, it's all about uh, coming to a sufficient level of trust in my system and that level obviously needs to be higher for a pacemaker than for some some SaaS. Yeah. And and however you get there is is the important conversation to have. I'm I'm glad you said it that way cuz cuz you know that, that that's something I talk about a lot. Um when I describe the 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 quote normal or forward process uh you know I I usually mention something I think I forgot to mention this time and that is we start, you know, th- we have this idea we're going to start building automated tests until we trust them. <laughs> and when does that occur? You know, there's, there's never a line in the stand that once we cross that line, we trust them. So what happens is, in the best case scenario, we spend six months writing all these tests. We, now we have 99.8% test coverage plus a bunch of manual tests. And we're like, all right, let's flip the switch over to the, to the automated thing. And, and someone, a manager or a product owner or someone says, oh, wait, 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 wait. What if we haven't covered everything? What if there's something that the manual testers would catch Let's not let's not flip the switch yet. Write some more tests, and you, you and you, and because you're not actually trying, you're not measuring against an objective goal. You're measuring against someone's feeling of trust. You never get there, or almost never, you know, probably never get there. So that's one reason I like this reverse approach because you don't have to have those conversations. If we can just move that whatever, and I, I said this earlier to you, Jeff, whatever system you're using now that you trust. Now, notice I didn't say it's reliable or good or does anything useful. I just yep. said you trust it. Yep. Whatever system you're using that you trust, move it before the merge button. Once you got that done, then you start the interesting part of automating things where you want to and where it makes sense for your context and for your team and for whatever level of trust you feel like you need. And if you do that, you can, you know, okay, maybe there's some tests that we still don't trust the computer to do. Fine. Let's let's take the one test we do trust the computer to do. Let's automate that one, and then we can have our humans doing the ones that we don't trust the computer for. And and maybe eventually we'll get to a point where we have hundred percent or or ninety eight percent or whatever automation. And maybe we won't. That's fine. Whatever context you are in, you can decide for yourself what makes sense from a business and technical and trust and whatever standpoint. All right. So so you know then begging the question of. Okay, so you move all that. So let's say you have a a large manual testing procedure, and you move mm-hmm. it before the merge button. And now no one can merge until they've done this. Like that, in many medical device companies that I have seen, that manual testing thing that they trust is a three week process. Right. Ah, so right. they're actually quite quick about it. <laughs> I, well, it's a three-week process once they've spent all the time ironing out the bugs of the thing, and then they, yeah, whatever. So, 
so really, what are how does that look in in places you've seen in the past? And again, you've yep. you know mostly worked with SaaS, but still, I imagine you've worked with companies that have large, very burdensome manual oh, yeah. test suites. You move that before the merge button, then what happens? They they it quickly grinds to a halt, and they have to start changing culturally. What what's the actual effect after that? Exactly. So th- this is where the the social engineering, and this is the interesting <laughs> the interesting aspect. Um, what you discover when you do that is that you suddenly realize where your bottlenecks are. Those bottlenecks already existed; you just didn't see them. Uh, and and now that makes people very uncomfortable. Because they feel like things are going slower now, um, because you know what you know. We used to batch all of our six hundred changes together and do that three week thing at once. Of course, when we discover a problem, then then it's a it's a big huge hassle to figure out. Wait, which of those six hundred changes caused that problem? And and does that person who caused that problem remember what they were working on? Do they still work here? You know, all these sorts of questions start to come up. Um. So yes, the, at the beginning, it's it's chaos i mean if you will oh my gosh three weeks to to tell you know i i I fixed a typo that you know changes the timing of something to work better right okay three weeks to test that so you you suddenly recognize that there's a bottleneck here and if if you're if you approach it well you will recognize that okay maybe a three-week test uh battery isn't the appropriate response for a timing fix maybe we can do some subset of this test suite uh for this particular fix uh, and and so you start to have these these conversations if you approach it well you start to have these questions these conversations about how do we how do we streamline this process now one of the first things a lot of people do and and this comes up you know this is like people raise their hand after the minute of a 30 minute conversation to ask how do we do this and the first question usually is how do we make more test environments uh, and, and, you know, and, and there's, there's this place for that, you know, that's, that's appropriate in some cases, uh, and sort of the gold standard there is, uh, especially for, for these SAS type things is, you know, every pull request creates its own environment that you can just test your, your branch on. You know, that's great. Um, but that kind of looks past the real problem, which is why is it so difficult to do this testing in the first place? And, and can we streamline that in some way? So that, you know, the, the first thing, uh, is, you know, if you have a three week, uh, b- battery of tests, is that appropriate when you're not testing the when you're not modifying essentially the entire system every time? If you're, if you're only modifying one simple thing, can you can you gain the same confidence you had before or better with a smaller set of tests? And usually the answer is yes when you think about it like that. Um, now whether or not you can cut through the red tape in your in your organization to make that work is another question that that goes back to the cultural stuff. But from a technical standpoint and a trust standpoint, I've never seen a situation where you needed to do the entire test uh, suite, manual or otherwise, uh, or whatever long process you have, that process was built around the assumption of batched releases. When you take that assumption away, you have a whole lot of different uh, levers you can pull and different ways you can can work on this that, that make things faster. And I wonder, we've also touched on this in the past of the podcast, if uh, in terms of what levels of organization kind of see the light and then don't see the light. So if you have maybe an engineering organization that uh, has has bought into this way of working, uh, and maybe they're doing continuous delivery, and then you know they're producing an artifact, and then every once in a while it kind of gets used by the business. So you don't get the end customer feedback. We talked, yeah. you know, Lucas talked about this ad nauseum, and so trying to expand that boundary outwards where you're actually getting 
the flow through the entire system, business people up front, delivery people, customers on the end, you know, closing that feedback loop around the whole organization, you could at least start with the engineering organization as this kernel of excellence and they have the fast feedback, sure. but it gets picked up by the business. And like you said, maybe it's not, a, the business makes a decision not to deploy it at that frequency, mm-hmm. maybe for very good reasons. Um, sure. I'm not sure where I was going with that, but maybe that's, I think, I think what, what made me think of it was, um, that three week battery of tests, at least for a medical device, you'll need to, uh, you know, you're required by the FDA as part of your regulatory submission to show that you fully tested the final release software. FDA doesn't, doesn't like, oh, I ran a few of the tests on this one because we've tested things in the past with a different version. Sure. Um, so from a regulatory aspect, you're often limited there, but at least, you know, as you're, as you're working towards this submission product and whatever, you know, uh, stakeholders you have testing your medical device, uh, giving you feedback, no, it doesn't work quite right. You know, all that can happen before your, it can, should happen before your regulatory submission. And so can be a much tighter loop. If that makes sense, no. kind of just no. thinking out loud. Uh, just to just to point one thing out, uh, it doesn't even the FDA doesn't say that you must test everything. Uh, it's just that if you don't test everything, you need to make a very clear case for why that's still okay. And in most cases, that's more hassle than just rerunning all of the tests. But just right. just to point this out, the, the FDA does not say you must test everything in that final version. It's just that you need to prove that everything has been tested. Everything so has I, I, been I was going to comment on that too. I, I don't know FDA regulations and I, I have, the, the closest I've come to a regulated industry is, is a FinTech, um, which has a different type of regulation anyway. Um, but generally speaking, you know, I, I have spoken to a large number of people who have worked doing continuous delivery in regulated industries. And, of course, there's going to be exceptions. There's, the world's a big place and different localities have different rules. But in general, when you go to a regulatory body and say, we're trying to do continuous delivery, how can we comply with your regulations? You will often find that these agencies are delighted to work with you because it's so much easier for them if you're doing some sort of automated uh, test. You know, you can send them an automated report daily or weekly or every build or whatever versus them having to go through paperwork every three months or whatever. You know, so it, it depends on the industry you're in and, and how flexible your particular agency is. But in many cases, uh, these agencies are actually quite happy to work with you. Uh, yeah, if, and, if and actually the same thing that you said before, where, you know, keep everything as it was, but move it before the deployment decision, that still applies also to your regulation, uh, you know, to your regulatory conversations. They'll be completely happy to inspect your test scripts before you run them and, and sort of pass judgment on, oh yeah, this satisfies our uh, our trust requirements. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, once you've got the final product and you run those tests, they already know, okay, fine. If the tests are green, we know we're going to be happy because we've seen those tests, you know, three months ago and, they were, and we already know they're fine. Mm-hmm. And it just occurred to me as we were speaking, actually, if you're working in a regulated field, it's even more important to have continuous delivery, isn't it? Like, yeah. you know, you're taking away so much pain, don't you? 
That's the huge irony here. Uh, going back to the conversation before about tr- trusting humans over computers. I, I had a job interview a few years ago um, where somebody, uh, it, it was for a, a job doing DevOps type work, you know, autom- setting up test servers and VMs and so on. And the engineering manager at this company, uh, I asked them about their automation. They said, oh, we don't automate the really important stuff. And I was like, what? Like, yeah, we we automate certain things, but we leave the important stuff to people because we we don't we trust them more. And and I was like dumbfounded. And and then he made a comment about, but yeah, because you know I, you don't trust a car to drive you around, do you? And I was like, I would love to have a self driving car. I would trust that so much more than I trust myself to drive. Once it's gone through the test, you know, maybe not. Yeah, but you know, honestly, I think even now the self driving cars are probably safer than I am. There have been a few casualties, but <laughs> Waymo, yes, Tesla, no. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I, I just don't get that I, that that mentality uh I, I i don't trust computers for everything i don't trust them to make intuitive decisions at least not yet maybe chat gpt will get there soon but um i certainly trust them to do uh uh rote repetition of tests better than any human yeah i, I think that's a very important point to make you know there is absolutely a place for human testers or for human drivers yeah. Um, which is exactly about dealing with unexpected situations, dealing with learning quickly, dealing with pattern recognition. Those are things that humans are really good at and computers are really bad at. But of course, just like you say, road repetition. I think I've told the horror story before of, you know, my first job out of university, which was manually testing helicopter avionics. And one one of the subjects... Uh, that we tested was was a a radio and it had I forget whether it was 99 or 199 um, presets that you could you know st- store you know, within the radio and that was like frequency modulation crypto key blah 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 all kinds of stuff and so to manually test that you needed to enter manually 99 data sets into this stupid radio and it took it literally took two days and it was essentially impossible to not mistype something there yeah and, and that was just a horrendous waste of uh of of human capacity wasn't it and i never you know, got why they didn't automate that you know what was it martin fowler or kent back or probably both and maybe others have said you know when it hurts do it more and you know that's uh, this. This goes back to that thing. You know, so if we have a hundred changes going through a week, and each one takes three weeks to test, that's a good motivation to figure out how to streamline that thing, right? If you're doing this manual uh, avionics testing with manual entry, and and you have typos all the time, that's a good motivation to to automate that. So don't try to avoid the pain; try to fix it. <laughs> yeah. Do you know uh, the the concept of an undone code? Yes. Yes. Okay, so for the benefit of the of the listeners, so that that is a concept from Lean, right? Where uh, apparently in in Toyota plants they've got this this cord that you can pull and will stop the line, and you're not supposed to pull it as an emergency stop, like if somebody's life is in danger. You're supposed to pull it if something is wrong with the process, like if you're running out of size eight bolts. Of course, you could somehow fudge it and, uh, and grab some balls from the neighboring station or something. But no, you pull this cord and you make this a big problem. Mm-hmm. And then everybody comes around and says, oh, my God, what happened? 
I'm out of size 8 bolts. And then they say, okay, fine. What can we do to make sure that you never, ever run out of something as banal as size 8 bolts again? Yeah, exactly. And it was so interesting when, when Toyota created the, the built their first uh, automotive plants in the US. And of course, they brought all of those concepts with them. And after a couple of months, they had a big meeting with the plant managers of the US plants. And, and the plant, plant managers were really proud and said, you know what? We never had to pull the undone cord. And the Japanese managers were like, you understood nothing. All of the problems are still there, but we haven't been able to pinpoint them and fix them. Yeah, the first few weeks you're pulling the cord all the time and then it just gets smoother and smoother and smoother. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. I, I went through this process recently. I mentioned I was on a six-month contract with the company um, uh, that it just ended. And when I joined there, they were doing uh, manual releases. They're, they're re so they were on two-week sprints, which is pretty typical. Um, and they were aiming to release at the end of each sprint, but they were like two or three weeks behind because... QA was finding problems and you know they were so they were constantly fixing last sprint bugs so that they could get last sprints release done a week or two weeks later or three weeks later so one of the first things I did on this team was like we're, we're you know oh and and their their product manager their their uh, idea I was like how can we solve this I was trying to you know play the coach here you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do how can we solve this and she comes up with the idea we should add another stage to our uh, release process that uh, I don't remember exactly what it was supposed to do but she was going to add another delay and another stepping stone along the way. And uh, I said, well, what if instead of doing that, we took this stepping stone out? What if we stopped having uh, this? What if we stopped merging to the develop branch? We'd start merging straight to masters. So start, you know, and I was like, well, how would that work? And so I, I explained what I did to you guys here. And the first couple of weeks, actually, I had developers complaining frequently. Like, I like the old way better. It felt better. I wait. How? And, you know, I had people confused. Like, do I merge? to master and then to the develop branch no no develop branch is gone pretender doesn't exist anymore <laughs> so i you know, just getting them in, into the workflow took, took a little while took a few weeks two or three four weeks uh but very quickly they caught up uh they caught on and things started working smoothly and we were releasing software 20 30 times a day a team of five people uh you know doing microservices um unfortunately it wasn't really a good <laughs> fit for that but <laughs> Um, but the point is, you know, we had five or six developers, uh, uh c together releasing 20, 20 times a day or, or whatever, you know, I don't know if it was always that much, but it certainly uh, approached that, um, versus releasing once every three weeks, three weeks late. Uh, and the software quality definitely went up. Uh, we were able to actually do, uh, you know, get customer feedback on, on changes we were making quickly, quick enough that, you know, the same day I could make, I could go tweak something instead of waiting three weeks to see how the customers responded. And, and I'm curious there. So, so that big QA process, which had been kicking back bugs were, what were they doing in this new way of working? Initially they were doing the same thing, except on a per feature basis. So, so what, what we essentially did was say, um, any features that require manual QA, uh, push them to the development or to the, to the test server and have the QA guy do the testing. Now, that even that alone, even if we did that for every feature, was much faster than before because he knew specifically what to be testing for. He knew that this feature changes the login page only. So test the login page or, or whatever, right? Right. Whereas before he was testing a whole, you know, basically the whole application. 
So he was able to narrow his focus and, and, and of course, therefore be more accurate in his testing in the first place. Um, you know, when, when you're trying to test a whole application, I mean, unless you truly have everything documented, which maybe you do for medical devices, but I've never met a SaaS team that has a, a truly thorough uh, test suite, manual test suite. So you, what you end up doing is you just sort of test things until you run out of time and then hope that you caught the, the important stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is not a, a recipe for, for high quality software. Exactly. And you're supposed to test and uh, to trust that, are you? Yeah. Well, we trust that better than the, the, the computer that does it in three milliseconds. So, But I, I want to finish the story. So at first, they were yep. the, the QA person was doing the same thing they did before, but more often and more targeted, both of which are right. improvements. Yep. And then, But then a few weeks, say a month down the line, as the team got used yep. to working this way, what was that person doing and, and how did that end so, up? He uh, spent uh, significant time building some test automation. And if, if we got to the point, and, and automated end-to-end tests, um, we got to the point where uh, uh, I eventually said, look, you are no longer to be testing the developer's work. And, and this is a point where every team should get eventually, in my view. You are no longer testing developer's work. You can keep working on your, and should keep working on your automated test suite. But when the developers need something tested, they are to ask you how to test it, and they will do it themselves. And so we still had the same amount of manual testing happening. It just was being done by the developers, uh, potentially with the help of the QA expert. Uh, and uh, and he was able to focus on things that QA experts should be focusing on, which is finding new ways to stretch the system and being creative about finding problems, not executing rote repetition scripts. So that that, I mean... I, I always talk about this because you know any QA is listening when I when I talk about this stuff they they start to get itchy because it sounds like I'm trying to fire them and I'm really not I'm trying to help them find a job where they're more satisfied and they're doing more useful work. Uh, have your have your manual testers do things that computers can't do and have your computers do things that humans aren't good at. That's that's the the goal here. So yeah, um, and then an added benefit of that is when a when a developer tests their own code. They get better at writing code and they get better at testing at the same time. And the quality actually, that, that's what actually improves software quality much more than having manual testers in the first place. The, the, the state of DevOps report re- reports on this every year and, and you know, the Accelerate book and the Dora metrics. You know, these, these are all things that, that point to this. I remember the Accelerate book uh, pointed out uh, one of their findings, uh, which of course is a few years ago. I, I assume that it's still being found in the, in the state of DevOps reports. But when a company has people writing tests. So this is still writing automated tests. But when they have the people who write the tests, people who write the tests are not the developers who write the software. There's no improvement to business outcome. Hmm. Which I, I find to be quite fascinating. Uh, from, from what my interpretation of that is, if your developers aren't writing their own tests, you might as well have your, your testers playing Quake all day as far as, for as much value as they're providing to your company. Huh, uh, and and I, 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 they didn't they didn't explain. I don't think they had the data to explain the causality of this. But I have some theories, and and my theory is that uh, I, I like to use an analogy. When I when I cook dinner for my wife or for my family, and I leave a mess in the kitchen, my wife has two options. She can either say, "Jonathan, get in there and clean up the mess," or she can go clean it up for me. Now, if she cleans it up for me, of course. I, I enjoy the evening a little bit more. She enjoys it less. But 
the next time I cook dinner, I don't have that motivation to clean it up. And I, and I certainly don't have the opportunity to learn to improve my cooking habits in a way that they make less mess. So if she forces me to go clean up the kitchen, yeah, I'm going to be grumpy for, for 20 minutes. But I, I, I learn to, A, be more responsible next time I cook. And I also probably learn techniques to, you know, maybe I can find a way to use fewer spoons so I don't have to clean as many in the first place. I think it's the exact same phenomenon that happens here when you have your developers throwing their, their test writing over the wall to someone else. They don't learn to write bug-free code and they don't learn, you know, th those sorts of important things. That is certainly true. I think there's another another aspect to it as well, which is that by having them write their own tests, you're forcing them to think in terms of outcomes. Yeah. You're forcing them to think about, okay, what do I actually want this thing to do? Write the test that prove that it does it. Um, as opposed to just, you know, I, you know, I'm just here to write curly brackets. <laughs> it's especially true if you're doing something like behavior-driven development or test-driven development, right? Where where the outcome is the first thing in mind and, and you write you, you are literally forced to describe that outcome in computer terms before you write the code that, that does it. Yes. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned TDD. There have been studies uh, comparing the code quality that uh, arises from test-driven development and from task and from test-later development. And it turns out in terms of code quality, like bugs found or something, there's no difference. As long as you test, it doesn't really matter whether you do it first or later. But the difference is in how like targeted your code is, how maintainable your code is, how testable it is. Because if you're doing test-driven development, you're forcing yourself to think in terms of, well, in terms of outcomes, in terms of results, you're designing the interfaces you would like to have so that you can test against them. Mm -hmm. And then you write exactly the thing that satisfies this interface. So that's where the power of TDD lies. It's not even so much in increasing the, how shall I put this, the immediate quality of a product, you know, the bug freeness. Yeah. You can achieve that just the same with test later. But um, the, the, the future or it's it's much more future proof. Your 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 product becomes more maintainable. It becomes better architected because you're forcing yourself to think in terms of the future and not in terms of the present. Mm -hmm. I, I'm an advocate of TDD, but you know, I hear I, I hear a surprising number of people say things like TDD is great if you already know the code you're going to write, but if you don't know what you're writing first, you can't do TDD. And of course, my response to that is, if you don't know what code you're writing, how are you writing code? But just yeah, to point it, out, there's it, nothing it, wrong with writing prototypes, but sure, right. But of course, but, just but like even, you say, if even you then, what even you're doing, if you're writing a prototype, you, you have some idea of what you want that for loop to do before you type four, or or at least by the time you finish writing the the conditions on the for loop, right? So, I mean, okay, maybe you have to put in a little bit of effort to to think through the code you're about to write, but that's kind of the point. If you're not doing that already. Uh, you, you need to, I mean, you, you would do well to learn to do that. Whether you're using TDD or not, think about, be intentional about the code you're writing. Yeah, and, and in fact, don't treat this as a bug, treat it as a feature. If you try to sit down and write tests and recognize, huh, I don't know what tests I should be writing, that tells you something, doesn't it? Yeah. It tells you you should get off your ass and go over to your customer and ask him, hang on, what was it that you wanted? Because I, I'm kind of fuzzy on that. Yeah, right.
I, I have to jump in and make an aside for our audience. So if, if our audience notices that every time Lucas speaks, there sounds like they're snoring in the background, it's because Lucas' dog is right next to him and is snoring. <laughs> I'm very sorry about that. I try, to, I try to speak so loudly that I drown her out, but it doesn't seem to be working. It's, it's adorable. I think it's a great little, uh, little personal note for, for our audience. That I, yeah, I, I totally agree with the, uh, the points about TDD. I, I think Jonathan, you originally said the word, the, the acronym BDD behavior driven yeah. development, which we've, right. we've covered in the, in the podcast in the past as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, any, I, I, we're starting to run a little bit long here. Any, uh, uh, any final thoughts? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess one thing I like to to think about. Um, I mean, as frustrating as it is sometimes to convince people that they should do automation or whatever. Ten years ago, we would not be able to have this conversation. Uh, you know, I, I, that's about the time I was hearing about continuous delivery for the first time, and you know, that's kind of the time the whole world was hearing about. It. I think two thousand nine was the the talk. Um, Ten plus deploys a day, and, and later that year, the next year, we had the first DevOps days. Uh, you know, so that, that was kind of the the, the beginning of this this whole movement towards continuous delivery um you know and back then the conversation was is this possible uh from a technical standpoint right we weren't we weren't talking about can we convince the boss that it's a good idea or can we trust it it was like is this even physically possible to deploy 10 times a day or 100 times a day that conversation has shifted so much and and i'm grateful for that you know now the the conversation I, i don't have to convince people that continuous delivery is a thing that happens somewhere like I used to, you know, it's like, Oh, that's never, nobody would ever do that. That's, that's never a conversation anymore. Now it's a, now it's a question of, can we do that here or should we do that here? And, and that's a much more enjoyable and productive conversation, I think. So I'm, I'm really glad that, that we're able to, to have this new conversation and, and we can even talk about the nuances of the different ways to implement it. You know, that, that wasn't even a conversation 10 years ago either. Agreed. And I, and I think that same conversation with a delay of five years or so is is in the embedded world. Um, everyone, I think, now understands that uh, as long as you... Uh, again, many of the devices that I work on are not connected to the internet. Uh, mm-hmm. And so the deployment frequency for those are necessarily far, far slower. Sure. But in production, not it, in development. Yeah, yeah depl- and that's why I said deployment, not delivery. So yeah, deployment <laughs> to production is necessarily much, much slower for those that are not connected to the internet. But more and more embedded devices are getting connected to the internet. The internet of things is becoming much more pervasive. And now people or like- Good or, or bad, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, good or bad. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, I, I don't need or want my stove or refrigerator connected to the internet. No, thank you. Oh, but right. many devices- benefit from that. Um, and yes, a lot of risks come along with that in terms of cybersecurity and whatnot, but the, the opportunity to, um, improve the quality of those devices by closing, wrapping that feedback loop around the end user and being able to deploy to them, uh, is now like that is now technical, technically feasible and people are doing it all the time and have been doing it for years. So the embedded world is now in the same situation that, you know, delayed by a little bit that the SaaS world was in where it's, you no longer have to convince people that it can be done. You just mm-hmm. point to devices around you every day where it is done. Yeah. Um, uh, and now, now it's a question, just like you said, it's a question of our organization is special or a special, either right. they say our organization is a special snowflake or, well, it's not a special snowflake, but it just sounds hard and we don't want to do it, you know? 
uh, having those kind so, of conversations. And and that's, I mean, everybody thinks thinks they're a special snowflake, um, and and nobody really is when it comes to this stuff, right? Software is still software, but when it comes to it's hard. That that's where this approach that I I advocate I think is really useful because it really lets you pick and choose which bits to to do. I mean, once once you get that uh, all the manual work done before merge, if you can get that in place, then everything else is optional. Now you can't necessarily say you have CD according to minimumcd.org, but if you don't want that, who cares? I mean, I, who cares what you call it? You know, the point is it it makes it really easy to sort of pick and choose which bits are you going to modify and optimize for your context, for your company, for your organization, for your regulatory agencies, and so on and so forth. Agreed, and and just to to be very clear here. You know, don't get disheartened by the magnitude of the task that's supposedly in front of you. You know, even if you have, like Johnson says, even if you have zero tests, but you have automated deployment, you're already so much further than you were. And then once you add even your first single test, (laughs) you you know, you have infinitely more tests than before. So congratulations. Um, And then you kind of go from there. You you iterate your way towards the better. I might even add one one little thing on that point about if you don't have any tests. Uh, I, I don't like, I mean, I, I, I work with a lot of teams where they're like, oh, we're working on adding tests in our spare time or whatever. I don't like that approach, actually. Um, and, and this might be a, a relief to some people who think that they need to be doing that. When you add tests, you are adding risk to your code because most tests require changing your code at least a little bit. And that code is, assuming it's in production somewhere, is already working and providing value to someone somewhere. And the fact that you're changing it to add tests, even just to do dependency injection, to add a mock or something like that, you're adding risk to something that's already providing value. Wait until you need to change the code anyway, and then add the tests. So so my advice on, on any team I work with is don't add tests just for their own sake. Add tests, just, just make a working agreement on your team any new changes, whether it's a bug fix or a new feature, add tests there. But don't go retroactively adding tests just because it feels good to look at that, that coverage percentage go up. Exactly. I mean, what's the point anyway? You are, you know, this code is running in production for better or worse. You already have trust in it. It is working provably. Yeah. So what's the point of writing tests that prove a thing that you already know? It does not increase your trust, does it? So, exactly. like, just don't do it. Yep. Trust Jonathan. I I got to jump in there. So I, I, I have written tests for legacy code where I, I am not confident that there will, I, I can think of corner cases that are encountered rarely in production that I am not confident have been come across or whatever, or, or have been come across and maybe through, you know, had a bug, gave an incorrect mm-hmm. result. So I have gone, gone back and added test le- legacy code to test corner cases that I know will come up and I am not confident it is handled correctly. Um, but that, I think that's a different case. Yeah. And that's valid. Yeah. And and that, that made me, that made me feel better, which is exactly the goal of a lot of this. Like I was not confident in it before. And after adding those tests to check those corner cases, like, okay, good. It does work. Okay. Thanks. And, and like, I I felt such a sense of relief after doing that. So if the tests you're adding to that legacy code, don't give you any, you're like, ugh, I know it. I know it logs in. Why this is not providing any value. Then don't add it. Right. I, th- I think you described something that, that I call like, uh, or, or close to what I call uh, test-driven debugging. 
which is also you know, I, I think there's probably bugs here or there could be bugs here i'm going to add some tests and, and, and prove it or, or or prove that there aren't right um you know and, and that can be valuable yeah but you just like we need better test coverage so that we can trust the ci system let's go add tests that's that's not really valuable yeah just just to add to something that you said before, Jonathan, so CI is a lot older than um, 2000. What did you say, 2009? Right. So I, I talked about uh, continuous delivery, I yeah. think. Uh, yes. CI was in the XP Explained book, which came out in 99, I think. Exactly. Um, the version of it there was a little bit different than what we usually use today because computers were a little bit slower then. But uh, and the internet it wasn't as fast and reliable. But but yeah, that concept has definitely been around for a while. That one, exactly. So the idea has been around for a while. Um, however, and that was the point I was going to get to. Recently, I attended a conference where somebody presented results from a survey of wrong software developers about their practices. And what uh, what came out was that there is at the moment a tendency to shift right. So in other words, to do exactly the opposite of what you've been advocating for, you know, make tests even later in development, make all of those steps even later in development, which um, I find incredibly shocking. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I hear some people these days, it's it's in vogue to complain about shift left as being a religion. And if you treat it as one, then it probably is is not quite right. Um, I try to do what makes sense, you know. I mean, I, I don't, I don't care which direction you shift, left, right, up, down, backwards, forwards. I don't care. You know, let's let's build quality software. Let's do it in ways that we trust and that we can get good feedback. You know, I mean, that, that's what really matters. You know, and, I mean, I, I guess I guess one could make the argument that you know, test and production is shift right, and that's a that's kind of a that's a pretty cool idea. Um, I, I think more people do it than realize. Maybe not in embedded devices as often, but um, you know, I. At, a, at the same conference, uh, I had somebody talk about test and production. They they were they expressed concern. I said, have you, "Have you ever done an A/B test?" Like, yeah. Well, you've done test and production then, so you know it's it's not nearly as scary as you might think it might be. Exactly, it's only scary if you've got if you don't have the right tooling to support you. Yeah. No, of course, test and production doesn't mean. I'm not writing unit tests or I'm not, you know, running automated tests. It doesn't mean that, which is what some people probably think like, oh, Twitter does tests in production. That means that their developers are always just, you know, they're SSHing into servers and hacking on the PHP scripts directly in production. No, that's not what test in production means. <laughs> exactly. It just means they never stop testing, which sounds like a good idea to me. Yeah. I love it. I think that's probably a good, good place to wrap it up. Um, uh, Jonathan, uh, anything that you want to uh, uh, tell our listeners about? Yeah, I mean, I would say if, if this concept is interesting to you and you'd like to read more about it, I, I have written quite a bit about this. I, I do a daily uh, email um, that talks about these topics and other software delivery topics. Um, but if you're interested in this specific topic, doing continuous delivery in reverse, you can go to leancdbootcamp.com. It's a 10-day free email course that sort of takes you through step-by-step -step how you can can uh, think about implementing this on your team. And then it'll dump you into my daily email so you can... Uh, see what I'm saying to everybody every day. And of course, unsubscribe if you don't like it. I don't want to send you spam if you're not appreciating it. So um, if you're interested in contacting me on, on social media or anything like that, the easiest way is to find me at jhall.io. You can find all my contact details there and a picture of me if you really want to know what I look like since this is just a podcast. Um, I think that's about it. Fantastic. All right. Well, this has been the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luke Engadney. And thanks, Jonathan, for coming on the show, and we will see you all next time. Thank you.